Chapter Seven of Hands of Iceland by Victor Hugo, translated by Abby Langdon Alger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sonia. Chapter Seven. In the pursuit of such pleasure as may be found in temporal felicity, she wore herself out on rough and painful paths, without ever attaining her object. Confessions of Saint Augustine. Returning to his closet after leaving Powell, the governor of Trondheim ensconced himself in a big easy chair, and to distract his thoughts directed one of his secretaries to read over the petitions presented to the government. Bowing low, the secretary began. 1. The Reverend Dr. Anglivius prays that a substitute may be provided for the Reverend Dr. Foxtip, the head of the Episcopal Library, on account of his incompetency. The petitioner does not know who should take the place of the said incompetent doctor. He would merely state that he, Dr. Anglivius, has for a long time exercised the functions of library, sent the rascal to the bishop, interrupted the general. 2. Athanasius Munder, priest and chaplain to the prisons, asks pardon for twelve penitent convicts on the occasion of the glorious marriage of his grace, Ordener Guldenlev, Baron Thorwick, Knight of the Dannebrog, son of the Viceroy, and the noble lady Ulrika Dahlefeld, daughter of his grace, the Lord High Chancellor of the Two Kingdoms. Lay it on the table, said the general. I pity convicts. 3. Faustus Prudence Destrombides, Norwegian subject and Latin poet, asks leave to write the epithalamium for the said noble pair. Aha! Uh -huh. The worthy man must be growing old, for he is the same man who wrote an epithalamium in 1674, for the marriage planned between Schumacher, then Count of Griffenfeld, and Princess Louisa Charlotte of Holstein Augustenburg. A marriage which never took place. I fear, muttered the governor, that Faustus Prudence is destined to be the poet of broken matches. Lay his petition on the table and go on. Inquire on behalf of the said poet if there be not a vacant bed at the Trondheim Hospital. 4. The miners of Guldbrandsthal, the Faroe Islands, Sandmoor, Hupfalo, Roras, and Kongsberg petition to be released from the costs of the royal protectorate. Ah, these miners are restless. I hear that they are even beginning to grumble at our long delay in answering their petition. Let it be laid aside for mature consideration. 5. Braal, fisherman, declares in virtue of the Ordelsrecht that he persists in his intention of buying back his patrimony. 6. The magistrates of Nose, Lovig, Indal, Skongen, Stot, Sparbo, and other towns and villages of northern Trondheim pray that a price may be set upon the head of the assassin, thief, and incendiary Hans, said to be a native of Klipstadur, in Iceland. Nikol Orogic's executioner for the province of Trondheim, who claims that Hans is his property, opposes the petition. Benignus Biagodri, keeper of the Splagest, to whom the corpse should belong, supports the petition. That robber is a very dangerous fellow, said the general, particularly now that we are threatened with trouble among the miners. Issue a proclamation offering a thousand crowns reward for his head. 7. Benignus Biagodri, doctor, antiquary, sculptor, 
mineralogist, naturalist, botanist, lawyer, chemist, mechanic, physicist, astronomer, theologian, grammarian. Why, broke in the general, is not this the same Spiagudry who keeps the splagist? Yes, to be sure, your excellency, replied the secretary. Keeper for his majesty of the institution of the splagist in the royal city of Trondheim sets forth that he, Benignus Spiagudry, discovered that the stars called fixed are not lighted by the star called the sun. Item, that the real name of Odin is Frigg, son of Friedulf. Item, that the marine lobworm feeds on sand. Item, that the noise of the inhabitants drives the fish away from the coast of Norway, so that the means of subsistence are growing less in proportion to the increase of the population. Item, that the fjord known as Ottesund was formerly known as Limfjord, and only took the name of Ottesund after Otho the Red cast his spear into it. Item, he sets forth that it was by his advice and under his direction that an old statue of Freya was changed into the statue of Justice, which now adorns the marketplace in Trondheim, and that the lion found at the feet of the idol has been turned into a devil, symbolizing crime. Item. Oh, spare me the rest of his eminent services. Let me see. What does he want? The secretary turned over several pages and went on. Your most humble petitioner feels that he may justly petition your excellency in return for so many useful labors in the domain of science and literature to increase the reward to ten escalins for every corpse, male or female, which cannot but be gratifying to the dead as proving the value set upon their bodies. Here the door opened and the usher in a loud voice announced, The noble lady! Countess Dahlefeld. At the same time a tall woman, wearing the small coronet of a countess, richly dressed in scarlet satin, trimmed with gold fringe and ermine, entered, and accepting the hand which the general offered her, seated herself beside him. The countess was perhaps fifty years old. Age had added little to the furrows with which pride and ambition had long since marked her face. She looked at the old governor haughtily, and with an artificial smile. Well, General, your ward delays. He should have been here before sunset. You would have been here, my lady countess, if he had not gone to Munkholm upon his arrival. To Munkholm? I hope it was not to see Schumacher. That may be. Could Baron Thorwick's first visit be to Schumacher? Why not, countess? Schumacher is unfortunate and unhappy. What, General, is the Viceroy's son on familiar terms with a prisoner of state? When Frederick Guldenlef confided his son to my care, he begged me, noble lady, to bring him up as if he were my own. I thought that an acquaintance with Schumacher might be useful to Ordener, who is destined some day to wield such power. Consequently, with the Viceroy's permission, I obtained from my brother, Grummond de Knud, a permit to enter all the prisons, which I gave to Ordener. He often uses it. And how long, noble general, has Baron Ordener had the pleasure of this useful acquaintance? Rather more than a year, Countess. It seems that Schumacher's society pleased him, for it kept him at Trondheim for a long time. 
and it was only reluctantly and by my express request that he left the city last year to visit Norway. And does Schumacher know that his comforter is the son of one of his greatest enemies? He knows that he is a friend, and that is enough for him, as for us. But you, General, said the Countess with a searching look, when you tolerated, nay, encouraged this connection, did you know that Schumacher had a daughter? I knew it, noble Countess. And this fact seemed to you of no importance to your pupil? The pupil of Levin de Knud, the son of Frederick Guldenlef, is an honest man. Ordener knows the barrier which separates him from Schumacher's daughter. He is incapable of winning the affection, unless his purpose was upright, of any girl, above all the daughter of an unfortunate man. The noble Countess Dahlefeld blushed and paled. She turned away her head to avoid the calm gaze of the old man, as if it were that of an accuser. But, she stammered, this connection strikes me, General, let me speak my mind, as strange and imprudent. It is said that the miners and tribes of the North are threatening to revolt, and that the name of Schumacher is mixed up with the affair. Noble lady, you surprise me, exclaimed the governor. Schumacher has hitherto borne his misfortunes calmly. The report is doubtless ill-founded. At this moment the door opened, and the usher announced that a messenger from his grace, the Lord High Chancellor, wished to speak with the noble countess. The lady rose hurriedly, took leave of the governor, and while he continued his inspection of the petitions, she hastened to her apartments in a wing of the palace, directing that the messenger should follow her. She had been seated on a rich sofa in the midst of her women for a few instants only when the messenger entered. The countess, on seeing him, made a slight gesture of aversion, which she hid at once by a friendly smile. And yet the messenger's appearance was not at all repulsive. He was a man of somewhat diminutive stature, whose plumpness suggested anything else rather than a messenger. Still, a close study of his face showed it to be frank to the point of impudence, and his look of good humour had a spice of deviltry and malice. He bowed low to the countess and offered her a package sealed with silk thread. Noble lady, said he, deign to permit me to venture to lay at your feet a precious message from his grace, your illustrious husband, my revered master. Is he not coming himself? And why did he choose you as his messenger? inquired the countess. Important business delays the coming of his grace, as this letter will inform you, madam. For myself, I am by the orders of my noble master to enjoy the distinguished honour of a private interview with you. The countess turned pale and exclaimed in a trembling voice, With me? Me? Mustemon? If it distresses the noble lady in the slightest degree, her unworthy servant will be reduced to despair. Distress me? No, of course not, returned the countess, trying to smile. But is this conversation so essential? The messenger bowed down to the ground. Absolutely essential. The letter which the illustrious countess has deigned to receive from my hands probably contains a formal order to that effect. 
it was strange to see the proud countess d'alefeld tremble and turn pale before a servant who paid her such profound respect she slowly opened the package and read its contents after a second reading she turned to her women and said in a faint voice go leave us alone i hope the noble lady said the messenger bending his knee will deign to pardon the liberty which i venture to take and the trouble which i seem to cause her on the contrary replied the countess with a forced smile i assure you that i am very happy to see you the women withdrew elfiger <laughs> have you forgotten that there was a time when you were not averse to being alone with me it was the messenger who addressed the noble countess and the words were accompanied by a laugh like that uttered by the devil at the instant that his compact expires and he seizes the soul which sold itself to him the great lady bowed her humbled head would that i had indeed forgotten it she murmured <laughs> poor fool why should you blush for things which no human eye ever saw god sees what men do not see god weak woman you are not worthy to deceive your husband for he is less credulous than you your insults to my remorse are scarcely generous must demon well if you feel remorse elfiger why insult it yourself by daily committing fresh crimes the countess d'alefeld hid her face in her hands the messenger continued elfiger you must choose remorse and no more crimes or crime and no more remorse do as i do choose the second one it is better at least it is more cheerful heaven grant said the countess in low tones that those words may not be counted against you in eternity <laughs> come my dear a truce to jest then musdemon seating himself behind the countess and putting his arm about her neck added elfiger try to be at least in imagination what you were twenty years ago the unfortunate countess the slave of her accomplice strove to respond to his loathsome caresses there was something too revolting even for these degraded souls in this adulterous embrace of two beings who scorned and despised each other the illegal caresses which had once delighted them and which some horrible and unknown expediency compelled them still to lavish upon each other now tortured them strange but just change of guilty affections their crime had become their punishment the countess to cut short this guilty torment at last asked her odious lover tearing herself from his arms with what verbal message her husband had charged him d'alefeld said musdemon just as he was about to see his power confirmed by the marriage of ordener guldenlew to our daughter our daughter exclaimed the haughty countess and she fixed her eye on musdemon with a look of pride and contempt well coldly continued the messenger i think that ulrica is at least as much mine as his i was saying that the match would not be wholly satisfactory to your husband unless schumacher could at the same time be destroyed in his remote prison the old favorite is yet almost as much to be dreaded as in his palace he has obscure but powerful friends at court powerful because they are obscure and the king learning a month since that the chancellor's negotiations with the duke of holstein plone were at a standstill cried out impatiently griffenfeld knew more than all of them put together a schemer named dispolsen come from munkholm to copenhagen had several secret interviews with him 
after which the king sent to the chancellor's office for Schumacher's patents of nobility and title deeds. No one knows the object of Schumacher's ambition, but if he desire nothing but his liberty, for a prisoner of state that is the same as to desire power, he must therefore die, and must die by authority of justice. We are now striving to invent a crime for him. Your husband, Elphiga, on the plea of inspecting the northern provinces incognito, will assure himself of the result of our underhand dealings among the miners, whom we hope to incite to rebel, in Schumacher's name, which revolt we can easily put down later. What troubles us is the loss of certain important papers relating to this plot, and which we have every reason to believe have fallen into the hands of this Paulson. Knowing that he had set out to return to Munkholm, carrying to Schumacher his parchments, his diplomas, and possibly these documents which might ruin, or at least compromise us, we posted certain faithful men in the gorges of Kjölen, directing them to rid us of him after robbing him of his papers. But if, as we are assured, this Paulson left Bergen by water, our efforts in that quarter are in vain. However, as I came along, I gathered vague reports of the murder of a captain by the name of this Paulson. We shall see. Meantime, we are searching for a famous bandit, Hans, called Hans of Iceland, whom we wish to put at the head of the revolt in the mines. And you, my dear, what news have you for me here? Has the pretty bird at Munkholm been caught in her cage? Has the old minister's daughter finally fallen prey to our Falco Fulvus, our son Frederick? The countess, recovering her pride, again exclaimed, Our son! In faith, how old may he be? Twenty-four? We have known each other some twenty-six years, Alphiga. God knows, cried the countess, my Frederick is the chancellor's lawful heir. <laughs> if God knows it laughingly replied the messenger. The devil does not. Moreover, your Frederick is but a presumptuous youngster, quite unworthy of me, and it is not worth our while to quarrel for such a trifle. He is only fit to make love to a girl. Has he at least succeeded? Not yet, so far as I know. Oh, Elphiga, do try to play a less passive part in our affairs. The Count and myself, as you see, are tolerably active. I return to your husband tomorrow. For mercy's sake, do not confine yourself to praying for our sins, like the Madonna whom the Italians invoke when about to commit a murder. Dahlefeld, too, must see to rewarding me a little more munificently than he has hitherto done. My fortune is closely connected with yours, but I am tired of being the husband's servant when I am the wife's lover, and of being only the tutor, the teacher, the pedagogue, when I am almost the father." At this instant midnight struck, and one of the women entered, reminding the countess that by the palace regulations all lights must be put out at that hour. The countess, glad to end the painful interview, recalled her attendance. Permit me, gracious countess, said Mastemon as he withdrew, to retain a hope of seeing you tomorrow, and to lay at your feet my homage and sincere respect. End of chapter 7